First thing I want to say is an apology. I've just come back from a period of sickness, so this is less polished than I, I would have uh, liked. Uh, the flip side of that is it's somewhat more provocative than perhaps I would have intended as well. Um, so I'm, I'm waiting to see at the end whether I get, get, get attacked by policymakers or by researchers first. I think there'll be a queue. Um, so my, my background, I, I've worked around widening participation now for uh, just about over 20 years. <clears throat> and the first 10 years of that was as a practitioner in various different forms. And then the last 10 years has been largely uh, in the context of, of a researcher around widening participation. So I'm drawing on both of those uh, bits of history. Um, in terms of my uh, interaction with policy and policy makers, um, I suppose a number of key things that I've been involved in over that period of time. I was one of the authors of one of the Four Cities reports published by Hefke in 2007, the one for Bristol, obviously. Um, I, my... Um, Currently working on a project with uh, Colin Keg there uh, for offer, looking at the impact of uh, student bursaries, um, and also over time, my, my research has been picked up um, by a number of different uh, a number of different policy papers. So for the National Audit Office and for uh, the IPPR, for example. So on the other hand, I don't necessarily think I've been very successful at influencing policy, uh, despite doing that work over that period of time. So part of what I'm going to talk about is my a little bit of my own experiences. Uh, based on, on, on trying to influence policy for the last 10 years and getting it right sometimes and getting it wrong other times. So um, I'm going to use as a, as a sort of starting point uh, the piece of work that Stephen Gorard and colleagues did back in 2005. Um, some of your memories might, may not go back that long into history, um, but Stephen was commissioned by Hefke to uh, look at the barriers to access to higher education. Um, and the report came out in 2000, 2006. Very interesting. Um, <coughs> Stephen and his team looked at over 500 pieces of research that have been published in widening participation up, up to that point in time. Um, and looked at them both in terms of what they were saying, but also in terms of the quality and the reliability of those studies as they, as they perceived them. Um, and I think, in a, in a sense, the, the most famous part of that study were, were, was part of the appendix, where the authors were talking about why the research that they had reviewed, these 500 different documents, for the most part, were not influencing policy and had not, uh, were not uh, worthy of influencing policy. And that was quite controversial, very controversial at the time. As I've noticed here, one exception of that is a, is a, a fantastic paper by ha Hannon, Baxter and Harrison, um, <coughs> which was described as pioneering of small scale. I think I think ours is probably the only paper that actually got away with not being scale, absolutely uh, savaged by uh, by Stephen. But uh, so that gives me a degree of moral authority, perhaps. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but this is what this is what Stephen uh, uh, said. And I, I, can, I can hear Stephen saying that. He's not in the room, is he? Right. We found problems in identifying research. Of the 60% of relevant pieces encountered that actually presented evidence, i.e. 40% didn't uh, actually present any evidence, only a subset gave sufficient information to make some judgment of quality. A high proportion showed substantial flaws. Other than weaknesses in reporting evidence, the most common generic defect was the link between evidence presented and the conclusions drawn from it. I um, take a softer view uh, than Stephen um, and, <coughs> and his colleagues. <clears throat> I think that uh, his definitions of, of evidence and quality of evidence would be diff different from mine. However, I think he's, he was basically right then. I think he's still basically right now. Um, so he identified a number of, of common problems here. 
Um, most studies didn't have a comparison group. There was no way of comparing what uh, a group that had been through some sort of WP initiative and a group that hadn't. Why there was no means of, of comparing uh, those two groups. There was an absence of counterfactual analysis as well. So that idea of what would have happened to these potential students if they hadn't done this particular intervention. And that's quite a hard uh, uh, issue to, to, uh, to look at in terms of widening participation because the timescales are so long and the influences are so diverse. Um, but that, that most studies just actually didn't uh, engage with that at all. Poor sampling practice. Um, so one of the things that uh, the GARS report talks about is the fact that there was an overuse of convenience sampling. People were simply sampling um, students from their own institutions. They weren't casting the net further afield. And they weren't looking at non-participants. The vast majority of the research that had been published back in 2005 focused on participants. It might have asked those participants why they've been participants and not non-participants, but the point was it was focused on people who had made that jump past that particular barrier. Um, and he was particularly um, <clears throat> unhappy with practitioner research, which he felt was, was absolutely riddled with confirmation bias, that people were evaluating their own projects and surprisingly discovering that their own projects were very, very popular and very, very successful. <laughs> um, and that partly is because of the environment in which researchers are working. It's also the environment in which WP practitioners are working as well, where there is a short planning horizon and a need to demonstrate results and success in order to justify policymakers within the institutions as well. Um, and finally, inappropriate inference and, and, and claims to knowledge. The idea that, well, the data was fine, the evidence was fine, it was discussed well, but actually, there's the, 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 the conclusions that were drawn did not match the analysis that came before, which is a point that, that Nick was making earlier, to some extent. So this is part of what we've now come to understand, or, or the first rumblings, perhaps, of what we now understand as evidence-based policy, or, or more, more informally, the what works agenda. So what's, what's, what, what works? I'll play with this a little bit. What works is, is, <coughs> is, is an approach which really emerged um, in, a, in the US has its origins back in the 1960s, but really started to take precedence in the, in the 1980s. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a school of thought that looks at problems in social science, but using a lens from medical science. And many people argue erroneously using that lens. And the idea that actually you can look at the impact of an intervention and derive causal information about whether or not that intervention was successful, usually through the use of various forms of experimental design, whether that's randomised controlled trials, quasi-experiments, and so on. Um, and so this started to take root in the UK during the Blair administration, the first few years of the Blair administration, where there was this sense of, well, there is no ideology, we are going to find out what works, and we are going to do what works. Um, and, but it's really, to my mind, uh, taken root further since the arrival of austerity where governments, not just in the, in the UK, but elsewhere as well, said, well, we've got a smaller public purse. How are we going to stretch our public purse to the best effect? Well, we need to know what works, what's going to give us the biggest bang for our buck. <coughs> so there's a real interest in working out what the most efficient way of solving social problems are. One of those social problems, obviously, is uh, in inequalities in HE participation. Um, Here's a, a, an extract from the National Strategy uh, for Widening Participation, published a couple of years ago. Um, and in a sense, this sets the scene for the expectations of you as researchers, and me as a researcher, 
of what government expects from WP research. Essential to understand activities, approaches and activities have the greatest impact. Improved evidence base, robust approach <coughs> to evaluation. Which uh, activities are most effective have the greatest impact on access, success and progression. So here we have a very clear agenda for what the expectations of policymakers in, in central government at least are expecting. And I think that is also filtering down then through into other, other parts of the system as well. And indeed, my own institutional strategy has a statement that doesn't look too dissimilar to that as well. The question I have is, does what works work? <clears throat> um, because it's interesting, there are, there are increasing voices now. Uh, after a period of perhaps 20 years of, of, of upswelling enthusiasm, this is going to revolutionise um, uh, social uh, science in the US. Actually, there's been a backsliding from that. There are critical voices. There are critical voices from quantitative researchers. I should have said at the beginning, my background is as a quantitative researcher. Um, so uh, I think it's Paul Lingenfeld uh, has just written a, a really excellent book critiquing the use of what works uh, in the US in education. But there's also critical voices emerging from medicine as well, which I think is fascinating, where actually medical researchers are saying, well, we're moving away from the idea of pure experimental design because it doesn't take into account the social context of medicine, which is far more complicated, far more messy. We can tell you what drugs work on a biochemical level, but what we can't do is tell you what's going to happen when that's in the hands of a doctor and their prescription, and then what's going to happen when it's in, in the hands of the patient, how that's going to affect different patients with different diets or different um, other drug regimes. <clears throat> so. There are these voices now emerging from the US, and there was a, there was a beginning of a, of, a, of a rollback, which I find fascinating. So what works, it rejects complexity. It wants simple answers. It wants actionable results. Do this intervention, and this will occur. Do this intervention, and participation will rise by 20%, whatever it happens to be. One of the key weaknesses, to my mind, is that it ignores both the placebo and Hawthorne effects or at least it doesn't take them into account in, in meaningful ways. These are very difficult to deal with in social science in a way in which they're not within uh, medical science. Um, the idea of a placebo in a, in a school classroom is quite an interesting concept when you think about it carefully. Um, we're going to get some kids to do something pointless for two hours just to see what happens. I'm teasing, but that's, uh, that, that, that's the danger. There's this idea of fidelity as well that you, you can come up with an intervention that will work equivalently in diff all the different places where you implement it. And that there isn't an issue about, well, this place is going to do it like this, and, but this place is a bit different, so we're going to do it in a slightly different way. We're going to use less time on it, or we're going to, we're going to use a different staffing approach. There are also issues about cross-contamination as well, that where your experimental group and your control group both know who they are, they're going to talk to each other in a way that doesn't tend to happen within medical trials. But I think most damning of all is that actually very few of the what works type studies in the US have actually been implemented on a large scale and have been shown to work on a large scale. Okay, so this is my idea of parallel lines, that we have a, a, have a situation at the moment where the uh, instincts of policymakers and the instincts of researchers are quite distinct. Um, this is a strange and challenging time. Most WP researchers, I'm guessing, in the room today are going to be from a qualitative tradition, probably from the discipline of sociology, on the basis of my experience of, of rooms of, of, of researchers like this. However, policymakers, to varying degrees, are interested in quantitative studies from economists. <coughs> Any economists in the room? 
One. Excellent. You're in luck. You don't have to be here. You're fine. <coughs> the, uh, so the challenge is, how do we start to bring those parallel lines together? How do we start to find common ground? And I think there is, there is a degree of common ground. So I'm going to park that for, for a second and now talk about three cautionary tales. So this, remember that the, the title of my, my, my talk was Parallel Lines and Crossed Wires. So these are the crossed wires. I'm going to look at three examples over the last 10 years of where there has been a, a mistake, a, a, an error, or a confusion within policy making around research. One around uh, students and debt aversion, one around aim higher, and one about around student bursaries. So the first one, tail one. <coughs> I'm going to focus on this, this piece of work here by Claire Callender and Jonathan Jackson, I think. Again, Claire's not in the room, is she? No, good. I'm not going to be nasty about, about the piece of work at all, actually. It's a, very, it's a very good piece of work. What I'm interested in is the way it then got life after it was published. The two key findings from this piece of work from 2005 that Claire and Jonathan did. The first was that um, students, prospective students from lower social class backgrounds have a higher aversion to debt than students from higher social class backgrounds. Okay, that was the first, first key finding. The second was that if you have a high aversion to debt, you're less likely to want to go on to, to university. Um, <clears throat> Sample size was large, it was a national study, 180 schools I think, and the number of responses back was, was around 3,000. So it's a large scale study. Um, and I looked yesterday and it had 188 citations. This makes it one of the most cited WP pieces of research of the last 10 years. Uh, beats all of mine, hands down. Um, <clears throat> as well as the 188 uh, academic citations, it also has been used in a wide variety of policy documents as well. However, when you go back and look at it, with my statistical background and eyes, those, the, 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 the results are statistically significant because the sample size is very, very large. Actually, when you look at the effect size, they are really rather small. So this, the, the, that social class effect, that, that students from working class backgrounds have higher debt aversion than students from middle class uh, backgrounds, actually when you roll that in with sex, I'm oh, sorry, sex and gender, that's interesting, okay. <laughs> something's gone wrong there, um, or, or I'm being a particularly controversial sociologist, um, sex, uh, so sex, stroke, gender, school type, ethnicity, age is the one that should be age in there as well, all of those together only accounted for 4% of the variation, so it's a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of the variation in debt attitudes that could be explained by social class. Similarly, prospective students, when you look again at the data, it's quite difficult to judge this, there's a little bit of missing, data, missing information there, but for every extra point on a debt aversion scale, they were 3% less likely to go to university, or want to plan to go to university. So the problem here was that the results that the paper reported were accurate. Unfortunately, they were also ripe for misunderstanding and over-extrapolation. Um, so there's a wide, widespread misunderstanding of this, um, and one key piece of uh, a policy that filtered into was the National Scholarship Programme. So what actually happened? <coughs> so this is a, this is a graph uh, from 2004 to 2014, this is UCAS data, and this is participation rates by polar quintiles. And what we can see is that, we can see very clearly here in 2005, 2006, and 2012, 2013, there was a, there was a, a shift in participation patterns around the time of the uh, tuition fee changes. But when you look at it more carefully, 
That shift is nearly all at the top end of the social scale, not at the bottom end of the social scale. So looking at backwards and taking a historical policy perspective on this, actually the predictions made by that piece of research, because they were overstated, did not filter into then to the policy either in 2006 or 2013. So the lessons to be learned from this. Simple findings get more attention from policymakers. They also get more attention if they're truthy. I love this idea of truthy. Some things don't have to always necessarily be true as long as they're truthy. Um, so does it fit with your common sense assumptions? Does it fit with existing policy dispositions or policy agendas? Is it already something that is believable? It's more likely to be picked up if it's already believable. Um, and particularly, uh, uh, my experience over time is that quantitative findings are very easily mis misunderstood and misrepresented, particularly when the researcher loses control of their, of their work, um, because policymakers often are not uh, trained and skilled in understanding quantitative research in the way in which they can engage with and understand qualitative research. And again, this, I think, is one of the interesting contradictions. They privilege quantitative, but are less likely to understand it. So that's tale one. Now, tale two. This is one of my papers. Um, paper I wrote a couple of years ago about the end of AIM Higher, and I was looking at what happened to a, the AIM Higher program that ran from 2004 to 2011. Uh, David Willits, your old boss, uh, here's something he said in, in 2008, rather disappointing record of AIM Higher, which has not yet succeeded in spreading university opportunities on the scale we might have hoped for. <clears throat> How did he know? What metric was he using? How was he making that judgment? Um, and the interesting thing for me was that actually he was making that judgment on the basis of statistics which were about university admissions, university participation, not university applications or demand. What was the mission of AIM Higher? AIM Higher didn't have a remit for, for uh, changing admissions procedures. It had a remit for increasing demand for higher education. And so this is the, the dark blue line here, our admissions, over 2004 to 2010. <coughs> And you can see here, quite clearly, what's, what has happened is that actually at, at the rate of growth of applications has grown much more quickly over that period of time, starting from a, from a baseline at 2004. So yes, if you look at the, the admissions line, I'm not sure I'd necessarily describe that as, as disappointing. Um, David Willis was talking at this point here. But what we can see is actually a much faster rise in applications. Um, so which is a more reliable measure of success when you're talking about policy success? And this is something that I've, I've critiqued over a long period of time. Is the measures that we use to decide whether widening participation activities are successful need to be robust and understood and challenged by academics. The other piece of uh, analysis that I did within, <coughs> within that study was the idea of dead weight. So I, I said, OK, well, let's leave, leave aside the, the, the stats. Why else would we not be making the progress in WP that we would want to make? And I'm fascinated by this idea of dead weight. I think it's something which um, <coughs> Stephen Gorard talked about in 2008, the five, but although he didn't use that particular word, um, and I think it's something again which still resonates now and which still affects our um, understandings now. And it's about that idea of activities which are applied to people who are going to go to university anyway even if they didn't know it at the time. And that's quite a hard concept. So the idea is you're investing your resources in someone who would have, who would have progressed anyway. And dealing with that as a researcher is really problematic. And it comes back to this idea of, of needing to have a way of seeing how 
uh, intentions have changed and be able to be able to understand and measure that over a long time period where there are conflicting uh, um, uh, influences on, on that person. Um, so the lessons learned here, <clears throat> we need to make sure that our measures of success are reliable or appropriate. I think without an engagement with the concept of dead weight, we don't get the insight into behaviour that we're looking for. And therefore, what we need to be doing is using more use of comparison groups to be able to say, well, we can't do this in the context of a randomised controlled trial even if we wanted to. So what we're going to do is to look at two groups of people and to compare how their intentions have changed over time. At the moment, there's far too much uh, emphasis within the research on looking at those that did go on. And that was criticism that Stephen Gard made 10 years ago, and I think that still holds now. That's not to say there isn't value in that research, but it's less likely to influence policymakers because it's less likely to give you information about the causes um, of uh, particular behaviours when considering higher education. Okay, my third tale. Uh, offer, and this is why I get lynched by the front row. <laughs> Um, so Offer, offer um, published a report in 2014, do bursaries have an effect on retention rates? Um, really interesting piece of work, quantitative analysis of national data. Um, and what's boiling it down, what that report argued was that, that students who were getting bursaries didn't do any better than other students. Not, so uh, in terms of first year retention. So not that they were doing worse, but they were doing no better. And the inference that was then drawn from that was the bursaries were ineffective. They weren't promoting first, <coughs> first year retention. Uh, and therefore, perhaps not a good use of widening participation funding. In fact, in a sense, echoing the uh, statements that Alan Milburn had said a couple of years earlier about bursaries not impacting on choices and therefore a bad use of, of, uh, of funding as well. But what, what is fascinating is that actually this doesn't match up with a large corpus of qualitative research from a number of different institutions. I've listed out a few there. There are quite a few more, and I know that there are a few more uh, impressive at the moment. So individual institutions are saying, we've looked at this. We've perhaps looked at our own numbers. We've looked at our, um, we've, looked, we've interviewed our students. We've, we've done a little bit of, uh, of um, longitudinal analysis, perhaps. Um, <clears throat> and we think actually bursaries are really successful. They impact on retention, they impact on success. So you had a, you had a, a difference of opinion here. Um, on the one hand, a national quantitative study saying don't work. And on the other hand, lots of little institutional studies, the sort that Stephen Gard didn't like, saying actually these do work. We're pretty confident these do work. Um, although most of them fell into that trap again of not having a counterfactual analysis. How do you ask a student what they would have done if they hadn't had a bursary. It's a very difficult question to ask somebody and the answer you're going to get back is not likely to be a reliable one because they will have all sorts of uh, retrospective uh, reflections and justifications for what their behaviour has been over that period. So which voice, voices should policymakers heed? Um, and this is hopefully where I... Um, oh no, it's the next slide. It's the next slide I escape. Um, <coughs> I think I've covered that first part there, haven't I? Yes, yeah, so it's very difficult to, to draw causal conclusions from subjective individual accounts. It's never go, it's, that's never going to sway policymakers, at least not, not at the level of one, of one study. 
On the other hand, the quantitative study was flawed through an er error of inference. Because when you think about it, why do we give bursaries to low-income students? We give bursaries to low-income students because we think they have educational disadvantages arising from their financial disadvantage. So what we're saying is if we hadn't given them the money, we'd expect them to do worse. Yeah. So the flip side of that is we've given them money and they've done as well as, the, uh, as students with a, a higher level of income. That to me is about levelling the playing field. So actually, that, to me, the, the report, a report that, that suggested the bursaries had been ineffective, to my reading, said exactly the opposite. That actually they've been very successful in levelling that playing field so that low-income students were able to achieve at a, a, a rate which was commensurate with mid-income students. Is that not a success? I think it is. Interestingly, also lacks a counterfactual analysis. Now, this is where I hopefully escape from the, from, uh, the attack from, from offer, uh, which is by saying that actually they've changed their mind, they've shifted their position, they've changed their minds to, to a degree around that because of the challenge from uh, these other studies and understanding that actually there are other ways of thinking about, about this. So, <clears throat> my three lessons learned, and then I'll, I'll tie up my um, session. Qualitative, at the moment, quantitative studies are more likely to be privileged. Um, the importance of a robust counterfactual analysis. <clears throat> um, do we meet the, the biz test? Understanding activities which are most effective and have the greatest impact. However, in this instance, the a weight of multiple high quality, quality qualitative studies has challenged successfully a quantitative orthodoxy. And I think that's really interesting. I also think it's really refreshing uh, seeing that dialogue and discussion uh, between researchers and, and policymakers. Okay, conclusion, not least because my voice is giving out. So we've got two tribes who uh, are going to war. Um, on the left we have researchers and on the right we have, we have policy makers. Um, inhabit quite different words, uh, worlds. So researchers like nuance and ambiguity, policy makers like simplicity and certainty. Researchers are really, really, really interested in dead French people. Uh, policy makers not so interested in dead French people. Um, Researchers generally a bit suspicious of numbers, unless you're a, a, a cons person like me. Policymakers really quite like numbers. Um, researchers love asking more questions. Uh, policymakers really want operationalizable answers and, 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 and so on. Researchers often are interested in stories, particularly uh, qualitative researchers are very interested in telling stories. Policymakers are interested in impact and outcomes. But and like the bottom here, researchers want research funds and policymakers have research funds, which again is a <laughs> fundamental part of that dynamic that we need to appreciate, understand and, and work within. But at the bottom here, both groups want the same. We wouldn't be researchers in this field if we weren't looking for wider and fairer participation in HE. And policymakers want the same as well. It's a state of policy aim. And it has been now for 16, 20 years, depending on, on when you see the start of, of modern uh, WP policy development. So fi final slide, five tips for getting your research noticed. First of all, at the moment, if you're a qualitative researcher, you've got to work harder. I'm afraid that's the, that's the bad news. I think quantitative researchers do as well, because I think actually in order to make their research meaningful to the rest of the research community, actually they've got to take a step back and understand how they, how quantitative researchers talk to qualitative researchers. Um, <clears throat> think about passing the so what test. What are, what are policymakers going to do with your findings in the real world? 
can they can they can they make it operate upright? Can they operate there? <laughs> can they put it into operation? <clears throat> make your findings understandable. I've said simple. That I don't really mean simple. I mean understandable. But losing that complexity that we love as researchers, <laughs> losing the the densely argued theory, using losing the opaque terminology. Really understanding this importance of counterfactual and comparison group analyses. Again, it's not a natural position for most qualitative researchers. It's quite a natural position for most quantitative researchers, but hard to do and hard, very, very hard to do well. And then finally, be careful with your underpinning epistemology. Don't overclaim. Again, this is something I see in a lot of studies where there's a good piece of research, there's good evidence, but actually at the end of it, the claim doesn't match the evidence that's presented. And that happens still far too often. Again, part of that driver to want to be controversial, to grab the headlines, get media attention. Um, but actually, under scrutiny, that, that falls away quite quickly. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks, Nick.